Yeah. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much to the college band and uh, thankful for them leading us in worship today. If you would join me in Exodus chapter 13, Exodus chapter 13, and regain strength. And if you would stand in honor of God's word. Exodus chapter 13, we'll start reading in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses stood, excuse me, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear on an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By the day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. I pray today as we read your word that our minds would be rewired, uh, would be reshaped um, to be the mind of Christ. Transform our thinking. Help us to conform to the image of Christ and help us not to conform to the way of the world. I pray that you would mold us into the kind of people that you have called us to be holy before you. And that you'd use the next 30 minutes or so to shape the way that we see this world through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I may be seated. Helen Keller was um, someone who uh, was a prolific author, but at a young age, um, she became deaf and blind. Deaf and blind and uh, lived her entire life that way. And uh, at some point along her journey, she met uh, a tutor who came and who taught her uh, by writing on her hand, uh, taught her to read and to write and so on. And she went on to become a prolific author, wrote several essays, uh, was uh, a leader in her own day. But here's an example of power of something being accomplished in the midst of weakness, in the midst of frailty, in the midst of what some might call disability, and yet much was accomplished. And my question for you as we begin today is, have you ever experienced in your weakness God's wonder-working power? You were at a dead end. You didn't know what to do. You, you had no answers. You didn't know how to fix whatever situation you were in. But in the midst of that moment, you felt God's presence. You felt him walk with you, go with you, lead you through that time in your life. And maybe even in that moment, uh, maybe you didn't fully recognize it. But as you look back on your life, you can see God's work in some of your weaker moments in life where he carried you, he went before you, he led you through that. That's really the story of the Exodus. 
We are looking at a people who were nothing in the eyes of the world. They were coming out of oppression. They were stumbling into the wilderness. Uh, they had really no structure, no real formation. They had no constitution. Uh, they, they had really nothing. They had a stuttering leader uh, who had his own issues of trust. And they had everything really working against them. And ultimately, they had the, the world's most powerful army chasing them, angry with them. The world's most powerful leader ready to annihilate them. And it was in that moment they saw God's power. They experienced God's grace as they had never experienced it before. And so today we're going to look at four lessons from the Exodus. What do we learn from this story, the story that's been told for thousands of years, one of the most popular stories in the history of the world, the story that shaped the way that the Israelites would see the world and understand themselves for thousands and thousands of years, even to this day. What lessons are there to learn from the Exodus story? Four lessons from the Exodus. And this first one may, may be one of my favorites, okay? Um, and I hope, hope that you can say amen to this one. But lesson number one, God factors in our weaknesses. Amen? Aren't you excited that God already knows about your weaknesses? And when he called you, he factored that into the equation. He did that with Israel. He did that with his own people thousands of years ago. God's plan was to deliver Israel by leading them out of Egypt into the promised land. This is the land he had promised to their ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and so on. And so he is all through Genesis, all through Exodus, he is making good on that promise. But there's always challenges to this promise. There's always, this is the mission that, hey, I'm going to lead you uh, to this land. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have many descendants uh, through you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, here's the promise. And yet there's always challenges to this promise. There's always challenges to this plan. All through Genesis, uh, one of the challenge was Abraham himself. God's own people were a challenge to the plan. Because God's like, okay, I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to bless you and all this sort of stuff. And, and God is just, as we talked about in weeks past, God is just not as concerned with efficiency as we are. He uh, has existed from eternity past, and he will take his time, right? How many of you have experienced, you feel a little bit of urgency, you feel like you've got a deadline, and God is a little bit slow in your, the way that you feel he is, to get something done. Sometimes that happens. I'm sure that's how they felt as they were traveling through the wilderness. As certainly what Abraham experienced, major obstacles to this plan, to this promise. And there's an obstacle, obviously, in this Exodus story, too. Israel agreed to go along with Moses to leave Egypt, but it will not take much for them to change their minds. God anticipates this. God expects this. Uh, they have, if you'll look back at chapter 13, verse 17, this has to be one of the more humorous uh, passages in the Bible. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. Recalculating. Recalculating. Have you ever had one of those experiences? You're driving down the road 
and you're trying to get to where you're going and you keep missing exits and it's like recalculating, recalculating. You're just, even with the map, you're trying to figure out where to go. They've got a plan, they've got a mission, and God is going to take them the long way around. But why does God do that? Why does he, he explains why he does it. says, for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. They had about a level of faith to say, okay, we'll do this after 10 plagues, after seeing all of the mighty works of God. They're like, okay, hesitantly, We'll do this, Moses, okay? We'll, we'll follow you out of slavery to the promise. And so they do. But God knows that the extent of their faith is just enough that if they really face hardship from the Philistines, they're like, oh, no, we're going home, right? How many of us have been like, God, I'll do that thing you want me to do, but the first sign of trouble, I'm going back, Right? How many of us have had that kind of mindset, that kind of spirit within us where, hey, we'll do what you're calling us to do as long as it's easy for me, as long as everything works out just the way I want it to and I don't face any adversity. That's basically uh, kind of where they are in some respects. And God, here's the amazing thing, God takes that into account. God uses them anyway. God's like, okay, well, I know if I go this way, you'll go back. So, So let's go this way to avoid that obstacle that would cause you to lose faith and go back. God does that. God did that with Moses, by the way. You remember Moses? He, he calls uh, Moses to go and to, be, uh, to go before Pharaoh and to perform all these signs, basically to be his spokesperson. And what does Moses say? So, uh, I, I'm not the one that you want to send because I stutter. And so he pushes back, he gets in a little bit of an argument with the Lord. How many of you have ever been in an argument with the Lord? Okay. How many of you have ever won an argument? Anybody? No. No, nobody's ever won an argument with the Lord. But he's pushing back. He doesn't like what God's calling him to do. And here's the amazing thing. You know what God said? He said, you know, Aaron is already on his way. Aaron was already on his way because God knew Moses had a certain level of faith. He could just do so much, and he needed help. And God took, he factored that in. He factored in Moses' weakness when he called him to do what he wanted him to do. When you feel like God is calling you to do something, when you sense the Lord leading you in a certain direction, that this is, hey, this is what God wants me to do, then just know something. God has already factored in your weaknesses. It's not going to surprise him that you have an issue here or an issue there. He's already factored it in when he called you to do something, and that is wonderful news. So God knew Abraham would try to hatch his own plan with Sarah and Hagar and kind of go as he factored that in when he called Abraham. God knew he would call Sarah his sister and put the whole plan in jeopardy. God knew that. He factored that in. And God knew when uh, Moses came up with all of his excuses. He knew that and he factored that in when he called him. God is good. God's plan is awesome. But we have a real problem fully committing to his plan in faith. We've always got qualification. We've always uh, got these excuses as to why we can't go. But just know something. God has already factored in your weakness. Turn over with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look at someone who mastered the art of living in his weakness. 
2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. That's what we want to do today. We want to master the art of living in our weaknesses in such a way that when life is over, when we are nearing our last breath, we can look back and we can see a life of faith in the Lord rather than confidence just in self, rather than faith in self. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So in other words, he knows a guy, okay, who went up to the third heaven and he experienced something that is so magnificent, so wonderful, he's not even allowed to tell it. And if you follow through some of the other folks that have had a vision of heaven and had that experience, that's kind of the idea. Heaven is so wonderful, so far beyond anything we can imagine that we can't even express it in words. That's why if you read Ezekiel and he's describing heaven, he's describing the throne room, excuse me, throne room of God. He's like, and this was like this, and this over here was like this, and over here it was like this. He's giving one metaphor after another, after another, after another. Why? Because language fails. Words fail us when we begin to describe the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. That's what's awaiting us right now. Those who have gone on before us, that's what they're experiencing right now. They're experiencing something far beyond anything we can describe. Anyway, okay, that's a rabbit I just want to chase for a moment. All right, verse 5. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. So he's going to boast about his weaknesses. Verse 6. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. So basically he says, I don't want to give anybody the wrong idea that I'm something that I'm not. I don't want to say something that's unwarranted that would lead people to believe something that's unwarranted about me. We would call that humility, okay? All right, so let's continue. Verse 8. Three times, excuse me, I think I'm in verse 7. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. So, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, people 
oftentimes they begin to rest on their abilities, on their own individual strengths. And what Paul is calling us to in a spiritual sense is to rest on your weaknesses, rest on your frailty, because it's at that moment that you begin to lean on the Lord. You begin to lean on His grace, and you begin to see and experience the power of God to bring you through that and to use you in a way that you could never be used otherwise. And so he is leaning on God. He is literally boasting in his weakness. So think about your weaknesses. Think about your frailty. We don't want to boast in our strengths. We want to boast, you know what? God's going to accomplish this thing, and it's not going to be because of me. It's going to be really in the midst of my weaknesses because here's a weakness here, here's a weakness there. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. I'm growing in these areas, and yet God is gracious. He's merciful, and he uses me in those areas anyway to accomplish his purpose. Maybe you're not good at administration. Maybe you're not good at public speaking. Maybe you're not good at a number of different things, and you would think all of these reasons uh, that you can't lead, that you can't do that thing that you feel like God would call you to do, that you just don't feel equipped for it. And it's in that that you begin to lean upon the Lord and he begins to do wonderful, mighty, powerful things through you, just like he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like he did with Moses. And here we go, just like he did with Israel, just like he can do with an entire group of people if they commit themselves fully to the Lord to trust in him. Lesson number two, God is with us and fights for us. God is with us and fights for us. There could not have been a more perfect song. It was not planned. There could not have been a more perfect song before I got up to preach here in your presence. Because the whole point of Exodus is how God saves his people by his presence. He doesn't dial it in. He doesn't outsource it. He doesn't send somebody else. He himself is present He remembers his people. He hears their cry and he goes to them. And he is a cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He is with them. He is leading them all the way. And once they get to a place, God's like, okay, now let's build a tabernacle. And all of your village, all of your tribes will be gathered around the tabernacle where my presence will dwell. And the finale of Exodus is in the final chapter where the glory of God, the presence of God fills the tabernacle. Why? Because God's people are saved by his presence. He doesn't outsource it. He doesn't send somebody else. He doesn't throw down a book. He comes himself and is present among us. God is with us. God fights for us. So here's Israel uh, back over in Exodus. They are at a dead end um, by, by God's design, okay? Um, by God's design, they are at a dead end by all outward appearances. They are trapped and they are doomed. But there is an unyielding theme, and that is that God is with them. God is present. And so we see this uh, at the end of chapter 13. It says, after leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. Verse 20, uh, Exodus 13, 21 By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Now, we might think that's really cool. I'm sure that was cool for like one night, okay? And then they're like, can we take a nap or something, right? Uh, So, but uh, they're going the long way. God is leading them. 
uh, but God is present with his people and he has providentially led them to a dead end. Think about that. He intentionally leads them to a dead end. Why? Ultimately, so they can experience the overwhelming power of God for themselves. So that they could trust in the Lord afresh. Maybe the dead end you find yourself in is so God can do something incredible and show you something that otherwise he would not be able to show you. Why do we know of the great extent of God's love for us today? It's the cross. The Bible literally calls the cross the glorification of Christ. In other words, it's at that moment that we see really what this God is about what Jesus is all about. We see the absolute extent of his love for us that he would sacrifice himself and die on the cross for our sins. All of the wickedness, all of the suffering in the world ultimately leads to the cross and comes rushing in at that critical moment in human history. But we would not have experienced that for ourselves were it not for the grace of God. On their own, Israel was too weak. They needed God's intervention. I think that's part of the point of Christianity, part of the major lessons that we have to learn in following God is there are certain things that we cannot do. We are not God. We do not know all. We cannot control all. There are things outside of our control, and we must lean upon the Lord. We must trust in God's provision and lean upon his guidance. What are they to do at this dead end? Moses basically tells them, don't be afraid. Don't, in other words, don't blink, don't doubt, don't turn back. Stand firm on the promises of God. Don't back down, don't go back. Because this is a testimony to the greatness of our God. That he would lead us through this at this critical moment in our history. He will fight our battles for us. Lesson number three. God is glorified when we... Are outmatched. Kind of ties in with the second lesson. God is glorified when we are outmatched. So the question is, okay, so God providentially led them to this place. It was God's plan, right? He, he could have taken them um, a certain way, but God chose to take them a different way, okay? Uh, the long way. Why? We've already said, well, he took their faith into account, their lack of faith. He took that into account, okay? But he could have still led them in such a way that maybe they would have avoided this conflict with Egypt, and yet he leads them right to a dead end. Why did God do that? He answers the question in chapter 14, verses 1 and following. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and to encamp near Pi-Haharath between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. So what is the outward appearance even to Pharaoh? They're lost. They're absolutely lost or wandering in the wilderness. They are confused. So that's the appearance to Pharaoh. But look at verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart... And he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army 
and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Skip all the way down to verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. So why did God lead them to a dead end? He says it was so he could gain glory for himself. Now what does he mean by that? What does he mean that he's going to gain glory for himself through all of these events? It ultimately means that in these events, God is able to show them who he is. He's able to show them his glory, which means he's able to show them the kind of God that he is. That he is the kind of God who is more powerful than your gods, Egyptians. He's the kind of God who does not forsake his people. He's the kind of God who wins the victory on behalf of his people. He will fight for you. He is the God of angel armies. And he will deliver his people. He's showing them the kind of God he is. That's what it means to gain glory through these events. And of course, all of the suffering, all of the evil, all that people had to endure came rushing together in this moment where God saved them, even in spite of themselves. Because that brings us to lesson number four. Lesson number four, we should have grateful and believing hearts. We should have grateful and believing hearts. In the face of overwhelming kindness and mercy, Israel found a way to grumble. Um, They found a way to complain. They found a way to find problems with their situation. Look at chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Okay, again, kind of going back off of last week. God, this whole act of delivering the service that you're providing for us, one star rating, right? We don't like it. They didn't like it from the beginning. They didn't like it in the middle. And here they are at the Red Sea, and they still don't like the way that God is handling this. How many of us, we're praying for God to work in our lives? And how many of us are scared that God's going to answer that prayer, right? God's like, okay, I'll start working in your life, but here's the thing. God's not going to do it the way that you want him to. If you could do it yourself, then you would have. If they could have got themselves out of Egyptian bondage, they would have. They didn't. They couldn't. And like a kind of a frog in boiling water, they had become accustomed to a life of slavery and oppression, and they didn't know any different so much that they were complaining about being free and they wanted to go back. Moses, weren't there enough, weren't there enough graves in Egypt for us? I don't think that was a sincere question in good faith. They're being 
sarcastic they are, pushing back against his leadership. And they're grumbling, they're complaining. Notice what Moses, how Moses answers, verse 13. It says, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now, we read that, and we might, in our English translations, think that might have been a word of encouragement and consolation. (laughs) It was a word of rebuke. What he's basically saying is, you know what? You just be quiet and let let God take care of this. Now, he's not calling them to a passive faith. He's not calling them to, uh, to absolutely do nothing. But what he is saying is, you know what? Stop complaining. Stop arguing. Stop bickering about what God is doing and just trust him. Have you not seen what he's done all up to this point? Trust the Lord to deliver you. Have an unyielding faith. Have an unwavering trust in the God who delivers. That's what you're called to do. If God calls you to do something, you remain faithful to him and you do it. And you leave the outcome to him. They should have been thinking, man, I cannot wait to see what God does with this one. This is going to be amazing. And folks, if you are in church for any period of time, if you are um, in faith for any period of time, uh, you will bump into people who have that mindset about them. Doesn't matter what challenges lie before them, they just have the spirit. Can't wait to see what God's going to do in the midst of this storm through this valley. God is faithful. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote Philippians, okay, he's writing this letter to the Philippians and they are starting to be persecuted. He is in jail because of his faith, because of the proclamation of the gospel. And what does he say to them? Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Do all things without complaining. He says, do all things without complaining. We sometimes like to do a thing or two without complaining. But God, his word says, do all things without complaining. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Here's someone who has learned to trust in the Lord, who's gained a heart of gratitude and gratefulness and thanksgiving for all that God has done Man, I can't wait to see what God is going to do with this one. It's going to be incredible. Let's look at the biblical version of this, though. Daniel, if you would turn over to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Um, they're living in a nation with a pagan king, and he had um, built a, an image, an image. Uh, that everybody was to bow down to, the point of building a statue in your own image in that day was to say, I'm in charge in this land. Okay, that, that was the point. That was the point. That's why a lot of times kings in those days were said to be in the image of the gods, in the image of the gods. And that's why, by the way, it's so incredible that the Bible begins and looks at every human being and says, male and female, you are created in the image of God and gives us this beautiful task to rule over his creation as his image bearers. But here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have found themselves in a situation where this statue has been built, and they are supposed to bow down just like everybody else and pay homage to King Nebuchadnezzar. And they refuse to do so. They're the only ones in the kingdom who refuse to do so. And so now they are about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. 
And let's look at their response. And this is the response of God's people in faithfulness in the face of adversity. Daniel chapter 3 verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Folks, that is a faithful response in the face of threat, in the face of danger, in the face of adversity. It's to say, you know what? Our God's going to deliver us, but even if not, even if it didn't work out the way we think it's going to work out, still not going to bow down to your gods. We're still going to worship the true God because he is the God who delivers. He's the God who delivers. My prayer is that I have that mindset. My prayer is that you have that mindset, whatever challenges you face in life, that you approach it with this perception that, you know what, I serve the God who delivers. He called me to do this. I'm walking in faithfulness to him, and I can't do all the math and figure out how we're going to get across that Red Sea in front of us, but you know what, I trust in the Lord to do what he said he would do. Whatever that looks like, it's not going to look like what I would come up with. It's going to be much grander, much greater, because his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His ways are higher than my ways, and I trust him. I'm going to follow after him. Now, one last point before we wrap it up this morning. Look back over to Exodus chapter 14 to find something else that's humorous, but I think enlightening. Now, who's complaining? Israel. God's people are complaining. They're grumbling because, hey, Moses, you've led us here into the middle of nowhere, and now we're all going to die. And so they're giving Moses, and Moses is like, hey, you stand firm. Be quiet, just trust in the Lord. He's going to work this out for you, okay? So Moses is standing firm. He's encouraging God's people. (laughs) But look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh And all of his army, through his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and the horsemen. Now, first thing you need to know is that if you have fallen into a mindset of complaining and grumbling, something you need to know that God will do for you is say, you know what, it's time to just move on. Let's move on. Okay, let's actually do what you're called to do. That's what he tells Moses. But notice, who... Who is getting got onto, if that's a good sentence? Who gets in trouble? Moses. He bears responsibility. He serves as the representative for the people. What does this project and look forward to? Projection looks forward to the day where Christ stands in our place as our representative. He bears our grief. He bears our sorrow. He bears the weight of our sin on the cross as he dies for our sins, so that whoever would trust in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And through him, in Christ, you have the hope of eternal life and glory. So my question for you today is, do you believe this story and the truths that come out of it, the lessons that we glean from it? That God really is the God who, when he calls you to do something, he's already taken into account your weaknesses, 
He's already made preparation for that. He's going to work through you anyway. Do you know that even when you're outmatched, that even when things don't look like you're going to be able to accomplish them yourselves, that God is going to be glorified in that? If you trust Him, if you follow in faithfulness, leave the outcome to Him. Just trust in Him and do what He's called you to do. Be bold, be courageous. And through all of it, through all of it, do it with a heart of gratitude for God's provision for you and just trust in God. Believe in God because ultimately He has sent His Son, Christ, to bear our sins on the cross that if you believe in Him, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life and the hope of eternal glory. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And maybe as you are here this morning, you just begin to reflect on your own life and the way that you're living and and realize uh, you're at a decision point. A decision needs to be made. And uh, maybe this morning you just say, you know what, I'm not going to push it off any longer. I I just need to uh, make this decision. Maybe you need to trust in Christ for salvation and take that step of faith today. Maybe you've uh, taken that step of faith, but you've never been baptized. Okay, the Bible says to do that. Uh, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Being a disciple of Christ is accompanied with being baptized. So if you haven't done that, I pray that you would today. Or maybe you need to make a decision to join the church, partner with a group of people in this mission, in this task that we've been given to make disciples of the nations. Or maybe you just need to come kneel at the altar and pray and bear your soul to the Lord and say, God, I'm starting today, starting now. I'm going to trust in you fully. Not a paper-thin faith where the first moment of adversity or hardship, I'm going to head back the other way. But God, no matter what, you've called me to do something, and I'm going to see it through to the very end. I'm going to finish strong. I'm going to run this race. I'm going to fight this fight that you've given us. Gracious Father, I pray for every soul here today. Lord, that they would love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray if there's anybody who's lost today, that they would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. They would make that decision today. wouldn't push it off another day, but they would make it today. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would commit ourselves to you fully, completely today. Stop playing games. Stop letting our uh, Christianity be something that's on the fringe of our hearts and our minds. But what defines the direction of our days. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. Whatever the Lord leads you to do this morning, I pray that you obey.